So in this uh, second part of the show, we wanted to go back and take uh, some excerpts out of our visit with Dr. William Darity back on Juneteenth of 2018. It was actually June the 18th of 2018. We introduced that show by reviewing a very important overview of human rights in the United States. And I, I wanted to play that because this is a, by the Human Rights Repertoire at the time, and it's objective analysis relative to other advanced countries as to the status of, of what it is to live in the United States as part of the majority population. We also then move into the more dynamic part of the show, which is Dr. Darity speaking to federal job guarantees uh, and the solution-oriented aspect of the problems that face the majority population and have uh, would work towards uh, mitigating the uh, systemic racism and systemic uh, structured inequality that we've been talking about over the last three episodes that make up this three-part pushback against racism in the United States. And really, this is a celebration that we do each year. We do a lot of issues around wealth, wealth inequality, and we find that Juneteenth is best expressed, at least I believe it is, by sharing the concept of when is progress really a lack of progress. So that's what we kind of named this show. I wanted to start off, I think most people should be familiar with what Juneteenth is in Texas. But just to be clear, in, in 1863, there was the Emancipation Proclamation. Actually, it was declared by President Lincoln in September of, of 1862, September 22nd, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, that is with the effective date of January 1st, 1863. And of course, the whole concept of Juneteenth is that it wasn't until June 18th or 19th of 1865 that federal troops arrived in Texas and Galveston and pretty much uh, forced those people that were benefiting from slavery, namely large landowners, to pass the news on to a lot of people, particularly African-Americans, that didn't realize that they had been emancipated. I just want to say just very quickly that laws are great, but um, one of the big problems in our country, at least, and this is an example of it, is that they're uh, not enforced. Uh, and uh, other things are allowed to occur that essentially keep things from progressing in the direction that the law was created to address. Uh, I can remember in 1965, Malcolm, in one of his last speeches, or not one of his last speeches, but that was the last year of his speeches, claiming that here we were in 1965, and there was all sorts of segregation everywhere, yet it had been 11 years prior in 1954 with the Board of Education decision that segregation was quote-unquote outlawed. So that's the importance of, of, of people like Dr. Martin Luther King and those that, that are activists that uh, go to the streets and make these things happen. And I wanted to start the show off today before introducing our very special guest by just going through a report that was just put out by the UN. And it was a report of the Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights on its mission to the United States of America, Human Rights Council. It's the 38th session. This, this report actually is distributed, I believe, in June just this past week, but it was actually written 
in May of this year, May 4th, and I think delivered to the General Assembly. I, may, I might be off on that a little bit, but it's a very recent report. But it's just a shocking indictment of the United States of the way we treat the disenfranchised in our country and the numbers of disenfranchised there are. Uh, this is a, something that the UN does throughout the world as they, they, they evaluate, they report to the Human Rights Council on the extent to which the government's policies of these different countries aimed at addressing extreme poverty are consistent with its human rights obligations as such. So I, I just want to highlight a couple of things out of this report because this is the problem with our country, I believe. I've always be believed that American people are wonderful, compassionate people, but they just are kept from the facts on the ground. And if you don't know what the facts on the ground are, then why would you be upset? So with that being said, I just want to highlight a couple of uh, excerpts here. Uh, in this report, the U.S. has, quote, immense wealth and expertise uh, stand in shocking contrast with the conditions in which vast numbers of its citizens live. About 40 million live in poverty, 18.5 million in extreme poverty, and 5.3 million live in third world conditions of absolute poverty. It has the highest youth poverty rate out of all of the nations of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. These are about 30, I forget how many, 32 or 35 of the advanced uh, Western nations of the world. So we have the highest youth poverty rate and the highest infant mortality rates among comparable OECD states. Its citizens live shorter and sicker lives compared to those living in all other rich democracies. Uh, eradicable tropical diseases are increasingly prevalent, and it has the world's highest incarceration rate, one of the lowest levels of voter registration in among the OECD countries, and the highest obesity levels in the developed world. The United States has the highest rate of income inequality among Western countries. And, and we're going to be speaking with our guests specifically on this, not so much the income inequality, but the wealth inequality as well, which he's identified the most important indice when it comes to the welfare of people of a nation. Um, but anyhow, the 1.5 trillion in tax cuts that occurred in December of 2017 under President Trump overwhelmingly benefited the wealthy and worsened this inequality. The consequences of neglecting poverty and promoting inequality are clear. The United States has one of the highest poverty and inequality levels among the OECD countries, and the Stanford Center on Inequality and Poverty ranks at 18th out of 21 wealthy nations in terms of labor markets, poverty rates, safety nets, wealth inequality, and economic mobility. In a 2017 report, so this is back when President, uh, this is, a, this is a President Obama's legacy in a certain sense, but in a 2017 report, the IMF captured the situation even before the impact of these aggressively regressive redistributive policies had been felt, stating that the United States economy, quote, is delivering better living standards for only the few, and that, quote, household incomes are stagnating for a large share of the population, job opportunities are deteriorating, prospects for upward mobility are waning and economic gains are increasingly accruing to those that are already wealthy. And this was from the uh, NIMF report, United States staff report for the 2017 Article 4 consultation uh, deal. But anyhow, j just to kind of finish up this highlights from this report, the share of the top 1% of the population in the United States has grown steadily in recent years. In two 2016, they owned 38.6% of the total wealth in relation to both wealth and income, uh, the share of the bottom 90% has fallen in most 
of the past 25 years. Children's poverty, that the youngest of our country, children of our country, are the ones that are disproportionately in these areas of poverty. And then finally, I just wanted to highlight that even though things are getting so much worse under Donald Trump, that relatively speaking, under President Obama, there was a great failure to address much of this inequality of wealth and the non-living wage and those types of things. And I just want to remind listeners that you are listening to 91.7 KOOP right here in the capital city of Austin, Texas. And we are visiting with the distinguished economist, Dr. William Darity Jr. from Duke University. He is a Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African American Studies and Economics, and the director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. I just want to share that the research and the papers that you've been a part of and authored and co-authored have presented great light on some of these issues well below the surface and such. And in this piece, The Federal Job Guarantee, a policy to achieve permanent full employment. It was just published in March of 2018 with Mark Paul and Derek Hamilton as co-authors along with yourself. It was interesting to me that in this proposal of sorts, you first start off by talking about that there's already been precedent in this country under President FDR during and, uh, and following World War II. But I wanted to just take a step back because there has been a big movement in our country about trying to institute a $15 an hour across the board wage, minimum wage type of thing. And from reading your paper, it became very obvious that this is a, would be a positive thing, but would in no way address the huge problems that the UN has pointed out in our country that we started the show with. But your proposal here is much, much different. And so can you kind of summarize, first of all, how some of these ideas are from FDR's era and give us a, a synopsis of the breadth and the, the quality of the pro- programmatic changes that you're suggesting that would actually put an end to this uh, horrific levels of economic inequality in our country. The American precedents for this type of an approach really predate World War II. They are policies that were introduced in response to the Great Great Depression by the Roosevelt administration. And the primary examples are the Works Progress Administration and the Civilian Conservation Corps. And the premise of those programs was we could put people to work under conditions of massive unemployment we could put people to work at socially useful tasks that could have a long-term benefit for the society. And so much of our physical infrastructure that exists today was actually built during the course of the 1930s under the auspices of the Works Progress Administration, uh, various roads, bridges, and highways. But even social and cultural structures like theaters in my own personal area, of North Carolina, there's a theater called the Raleigh Little Theater, and it was created and built during the Great Depression under the auspices of the Works Progress Administration. So there was a lot of valuable social work that was done under the terms of both the Civilian Conservation Corps and the Works Progress Administration. So that's the precedent. What were the limitations? Those programs didn't cover everybody. And they also were not permanent. And so 
1944, Roosevelt introduces the idea of, of having a series of constitutional amendments to provide all Americans with economic security. He referred to this as a second Bill of Rights or an economic Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mark Paul, Derek Hamilton, and myself have actually talked about and written about in an article that appeared in the American Prospect earlier this year, uh, the need for an economic Bill of Rights for the 21st century. And one of the central planks of that would be the provision of a federal job guarantee for all Americans. And what this would mean is that any American citizen who wanted to take a public sector job under the terms of the job guarantee could do so. There would be no eligibility requirements. There would be no time limits. This would be an option that would be available to every American adult. How does it differ from, say, the living wage? Well, uh, you know, obviously, uh, I, would, I must think positively about the living wage movement because it's a movement that's intended to address wages that are too low to enable people to live decent lives. But there are two central problems with the living wage approach or minimum wage laws in general. The first problem is those laws do not ensure that everyone will have employment and if you're without a job, your effective minimum wage is zero. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the second thing is those, those types of laws do not ensure that everyone will have a sufficient number of hours of work to get wages that will be above the poverty level. So there's the, the guarantee of a, of a $15 wage per hour is not a guarantee of a number of hours of work at the same time. And so it preserves the kind of precarity that exists in the labor market today. Nor, uh, nor benefits, I presume. There, yeah, would not necessarily, you would not be eligible for benefits given uh, limitations on the number of hours. Mm -hmm. And so what the federal job, job guarantee that we have in mind and is, is designed to do is the following. It's supposed to establish an assurance of employment for anyone who wants to take a job at non-poverty wages. So the minimum wage or annual earnings associated with a federal job guarantee, with federal job guarantee employment would be somewhere in the vicinity of twenty-three dollars to $24,000. But on top of that, every person taking the public sector job would also receive the same level of benefits that go to all federal civil servants, mm -hmm. including medical insurance. And so this would give everyone an option for employment that could allow them to exit from bad jobs. So excuse me for interrupting real quick, but yeah, just so our sure. listeners are clear, after reading your paper, you suggest that 1163 an hour, which would be times 2080, which is the number of work hours, that, that comes out to that 24,000 federal poverty level for a family of four, but you're suggesting then when you include the benefits of having health care and leave, vacation leave of a certain amount and those types of things, the 1163 is, is actually much more or considerably more than 1163. Yeah, ultimately we've estimated that if you took into account the full expense of the program, including wages, benefits, salaries for administrators, equipment, materials, and training, mm -hmm. that probably the cost of the program would run about $60,000 per worker. Mm -hmm. And so that's the number that we've been operating on in terms of developing estimates of the cost of the program. But the program would be more expensive during periods where the economy is in a downturn or a recession 
because there would be more people who would be thrown out of work who would be likely to be looking for job opportunities. But in periods where the economy is more prosperous, the number of workers would contract or, or decline, and so the program would be less expensive on the upturn. But the benefit of having a more expensive program on the downturn is that you can mitigate how severe the recession is because you could maintain consumption expenditure on the part of all of the all of the American age-eligible workforce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not only that, though, but the dignity, not just the dignity, but the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, basically part of the whole UN report, one of their concerns spoke to this issue that these economic Bill of Rights that you're alluding to under FDR is, is something that's been adopted throughout uh, world treaties as, as being a, a human right, so to speak, and such. And it seems like this program, unlike the minimum wage deal, which is, which is a progressive thing, actually brings us close to you know, potentially uh, envisioning a, a situation where we actually do meet the basic needs of everyone in the country. Is that, would that be fair to say? That's fair to say. You know, the anti-union movement has used the language of right to work as a means of, of activating laws throughout the country that block union organizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, our premise here is that we want a social program that could empower unions. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so we refer to this as an authentic right to work or a right to employment. And yes, it's a basic human right, and that's what we think should be embodied in the overall tableau of economic rights for the 21st century. Right. And so in addition to that, with your deal there, there, there seems to be a number of things to keep in mind. One, one of them is with this type of process where we're trying to uh, meet this basic needs. In your paper, you indicate an annual number in the hundreds of billion, I think it was like about five, $500 billion or something. I'm not sure what it was exactly. You can, maybe you can say it exactly. But I also appreciated the fact that there would be reductions in a number of programs, which are these kind of like safety nets, which have a bunch of holes in them to begin with. Can you run that safety net, the total kind of cost process by our listeners as well from, from your research? So- yeah, so we estimated that the total cost of a variety of income support programs that function to assist people when they fall into poverty is about $750 billion. Mm-hmm. And that that's probably close to the expense associated with putting, say, 15 million people to work under a federal job guarantee. Mm -hmm. Now, there wouldn't be a perfect offset because we wouldn't want to eliminate all of these social programs, unlike some of the political figures in current American life. And so we we would have a net expense that's greater than the expense associated with those types of programs. But what we could reduce we could reduce the expenditure on them in a significant way. The most obvious one that we could reduce in an ideal federal job guarantee environment is unemployment compensation. Because if we had the system up and running in proper fashion, if somebody lost a job in the morning, they could go to what would what would now become a true employment office mm-hmm. and have a new job by the afternoon under the federal job guarantee. And so long periods of support that are associated with unemployment compensation wouldn't be necessary. So this would actually bring up the floor 
of the economic floor, so to speak, so that private sector jobs would have to provide things that rival this level of benefits, which is basically just meeting human dignity norms. That's right. Uh, it sounds like f- f- number That's one. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, people wouldn't uh, people wouldn't take those jobs if mm-hmm. they offered conditions that were worse than the jobs offered by the public sector. So at the end of the day, what you're actually are doing is you're bringing the economy into the 21st century by actually, <laughs> wow, what a concept! Meeting yeah, people's, right. <laughs> you know, pe- people that want to work and will work, uh, actually getting a, a livable and semi comfortable. Wage. Now, let me ask you this. This is where the rubber hits the road. Obviously, we've been talking on this show for a long, long time about this horrific discrepancy of, of, of wealth inequality in this country. And has it even accelerated under President Obama and et cetera and such. So obviously, a program like this reverses those trendings, I would suspect. No one expects perfect equality. I certainly don't. But these absolute egregious levels of inequality are, are absolutely unacceptable. And we've talked about the, the poverty, the, the obesity, and all of these things that this UN report put, put out in our country and such. I mean, how would it change this uh, wealth inequality? And as a fact of the matter, the fact that it would, there's going to be great pushback by the wealthiest of this country or the interests of the wealthiest of this country. So how do we market it? in a way that the American public can see the decency and the congruence with our democratic traditions of, you know, of trying to meet the basic needs of our, uh, of our people? So, so first of all, the job guarantee probably does very little to influence wealth, wealth inequality. It does affect income inequality and earnings inequality, but mm-hmm. I, I think it has maybe a marginal effect on wealth inequality, and we need other policies. But how about, how, about, how about over generations? Like, if this is effective for a generation or two, I mean, I, w- I would suspect... Well, I, would, I, I, yeah. think, I think we could yeah. have uh, a significant effect on deprivation, mm-hmm. health-related uh, issues as well, but, but I don't think we would change the wealth, the wealth distribution very much. Okay. I think that those who are most powerful would oppose this because it eliminates the threat of unemployment, mm-hmm. and that's what I think that they value is the capacity to put people out of work. And what this would do is eliminate that capability. That's where the rubber would meet the road in this case. But let me say this. The folks who would be opposed to this are a minority of the population. So what we have to do is outvote them. Mm-hmm. That's all there is to it. I, we're not going to persuade them to support an initiative like this. Mm-hmm. So we have to compel them to accept it. Mm-hmm. Well, so let me go back then and just people can, uh, or let me let you go back, if you would, please. If people are interested to find out more about this particular paper that you wrote and the trending that it's connected to with respect to this kind of solution-oriented approach to the unemployment issue, how can they access that and how can people be aware of any papers that come up and out in the near future from, from your team? So the easiest way to get information about the work that we've done on this is to go to the website for my research center, Mm -hmm. which is called the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity. The website is Duke Social Equity, and we have a, a link on the website to all of our research papers, as well as another link to all of the news media coverage of our work 
And between the two, I think uh, people can find an extensive set of materials on this. Mm -hmm. The most recent uh, article about this is a short two-page article, which is available online from the journal Intereconomics. And it's uh, a piece by Derek Hamilton and myself on the federal job guarantee. And it's under the heading of this journal's Letter from America since it's a European journal, and they solicited our discussion of the American approach to a job guarantee. And uh, the name of the journal their, again is Inter- Intereconomics. Well, listen, Dr. Jay, in, in the last couple of minutes, I just want to mention one other thing here. So when you create a program that has these types of, of benefits and employs people, then the, the expenditure has to come from taxes, right? And the tax base, I would suspect, is not what it needs to be based on the, the tax reforms that have gone on or the lack of tax reforms that have gone on. Is there anything that you see is, is connected to that that we need to be advocating or as, as part of your proposal? Are you suggesting any kind of tax type of reform? Uh, tax reform that moves in the opposite direction from the current tax reform would be beneficial <laughs> for any number of reasons. Right. Uh, but not necessarily essential for the purpose of activating this program. Mm-hmm. I tend to subscribe somewhat, and this is this may be a topic for another conversation, right. but I subscribe to a certain degree to what is called modern monetary theory. Mm-hmm. And, and so the premise behind that is that if public expenditures are used for the purposes of producing goods and services, which is exactly what would happen under federal job guarantee, yeah. we would meet physical infrastructure needs, we would meet human infrastructure needs like right, the provision right. of child care and elder care. Right. As long as public expenditure is used for the purposes of generating goods and services, then it becomes possible to have those kinds of expenditures generate their own finance mm-hmm. because they increase the amount of revenue that's available to be taxed. Yeah, and exactly. These are the types of benefits that American workers deserve, namely childcare, et cetera, and those other things. Well, Dr. Darity, thank you so much for your time tonight. We will maintain our contact with your work, and we really, I really appreciate the work that you're, you and Dr. Derek Hamilton and, and others have done over the years and look forward to following it into the near future. So thank you very much, Dr. Darity, for your time tonight. Thanks so much, Pedro. Always. All right, friend. Take care. Take care. Ciao. Okay, we'll see you next week. And we leave you with Land of Naivety. Breaks all his own love